You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guest today is Jude Atwood, author of the new novel, Maybe There Are Witches. Jude grew up on a farm in small town, Illinois. After graduating from Bradley University and Chapman University, he became a community college professor in Orange County, California. His first novel, Maybe There Are Witches, won the Kraken Prize for middle grade fiction. On the show, we talked about creating a fictional town, how plotting allows you to write chapters out of order, beginning with character, side characters, submitting to publishers, book banning, and more. Before we bring them on, a few words about Patreon. If you found the show useful to your writing life, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writersonwriting and become a supporter. There are perks for supporters and any amount at all helps us to continue doing what we're doing. For more than 20 years, the show broadcast at KUCI on the UC Irvine campus. During COVID, Marie and I began doing the show from our homes. We never returned to the station, and what we found was that doing the show from our homes meant we needed to invest in equipment, and the show required more time. If you like the show, please think about contributing. Even a few dollars a month will help us to continue bringing the show to you. And now, for my talk with Jude Atwood, author of Maybe There Are Witches. Jude, I'm so happy to have you on the show, and I would love to hear where Maybe There Are Witches came about. Well, first off, thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. And um, yeah, I I like talking about this book. Um, I began it, I, I hate to say it, but I think in 2013, I started um, uh, with the idea that I wanted to write a, a book uh, at the time I thought was a young adult book. And the idea, I, I, I tend to make brainstorm lists of just anything that I want to maybe work on in the future. I, um, for a, a little while, did stand-up comedy. And for a long time, I was a speech coach. And so I always have lists and lists of just possible topics, possible ideas, jokes. And this came from a list of possible horror movie ideas. I thought, um, it would be interesting to to have a movie about a woman who moves into a house and finds an old book uh, that she's never seen before, and then as she reads it, it starts to have messages that are are that seem to be speaking directly to her. That felt like a cool kind of creepy concept. And then um, I realized it would be even more interesting if it was a thirteen year old girl. Um, and so that was sort of the germ of the book. Uh, but then the location is um, because it's about a girl who moves from California to a small town in Illinois. The location is inspired by a real town. Um, I call it Biscop Scola, but Bishop Hill is an actual town in Illinois with a population, I think, under 200 people. It was founded in the mid-1800s as a utopian religious community. And um, I visited once or twice as a kid, and then we went on a field trip there when I was in a high school English class, and we had to write about it. And it really struck me because it's 
in some ways, it's uh, uh, it feels like ancient history, 140 some years ago, 150 years ago. But in some ways, it's also very recent. I mean, people are still living with the the sort of detritus of the 1800s in a lot of parts of the country. And so um, she moves to a small town uh, that happens to be the place where her great 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 grandmother was executed for witchcraft mm. uh, by a, a religious community. And um, as she discovers this diary and starts to make a couple of new friends at her new school, um, she realizes that a deadly catastrophe is coming uh, and that she might be the only person who is able to stop it. And so that's kind of the, the pitch of the book. Um, and it, uh, I drew a lot on my own um, childhood growing up in rural Illinois. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, I took longer than I meant to write it. I mean, I worked on other stuff and I'm also a, a full-time college professor, but once I, I finished it during the pandemic, which is probably true for a lot of first-time novelists that suddenly I had some time and decided I would kick myself if I didn't do this. The pandemic was good for a lot of writers. Yes, yeah. and, and bad for many, many reasons, but <laughs> I... I do think there's something to learn from tragedy. And I think there was a lot of, of introspection going on as well as a lot of time. Yeah. Well, and I also want to say happy pub week because your book just was released on Tuesday, which was Thank three you. So that's exciting. That's really exciting, isn't it? It is. It's, I mean, it's, it's this combination of exciting and anticlimactic because it's not as though something happens on the day the book, I mean, people right. have it and people post about it on social media and it's, but most people don't read it in one day. So I got lots of texts that say like, Oh, I have it. And um, I was joking to some of my friends that I, no one tells you when you publish a book, you get to see pictures of all your old high school friends, thumbs, <laughs> but I have so many photos now of people with the book in their hand and it's kind of awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, and what the other thing I meant to say at the start was that it's been ages since we've had a YA author on the show. And so that's really exciting for me because, you know, I think since the last time we had a YA author on, there's been so many changes with young adult fiction. Um, I don't know if you've covered it over the years. You could probably talk about changes that you've seen Um well, you know, that's interesting um, because I think uh, when I started the book, I definitely thought it was a young adult book. And I was thinking of of just sort of the colloquial term YA that people apply to things like Harry Potter and, and Twilight and uh, Percy Jackson. Um, and then after I wrote it and was trying to shop it, um, one of the things I did was, was start to read a lot of comps because the advice you get is that you should have recent novels that did well, but that were not number one New York Times bestsellers, because everybody says that. Um, and so I read a lot of young adult and realized that this was not a young adult book, that modern YA is very, not all of it, but a, a lot of the, the really well done recent YA fiction, young adult fiction is about very serious themes. And it's about violence and murder. And, um, and my book is a, a spooky adventure about kids in a small town. And so I don't think I was as familiar with the term middle grade. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think in like to most people, it, there's adult books and kids books, but there's actually a whole a real stratification in publishing that I don't think always existed. And so middle grade is I 
I, like I say, this book is for ages nine to 13, because it's a little bit scary, but I think traditionally middle grade is about ages eight to 12. And the advice that um, everyone suggests is that children read up. And so if you're writing a book for eight to 12 year olds, 13 is a good age. They could also be within that zone, but children tend to read about characters who are just a little bit older than them. And when I when I think about the books I read when I was very young, I think, oh, that's probably true. They were They were just around my age, but maybe a little older. Well, that's interesting because middle grade to me, at least years ago, was not as sophisticated as your book in terms of language and and kind of, I don't know, that's really interesting. Well, you know, I also think that 8 to 12 is a huge developmental age range. And I've seen people refer to things like James and the Giant Peach and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as middle grade. And I sort of think of those as chapter books. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, you know, if you look for a list of the hundred best middle grade books of all time, I think you'll see s- stuff like that on there. And Charlotte's Web, even, which I definitely think of as a as a chapter book. Um, I think someone like um, gosh, Ellen Raskin, who wrote The Westing Game, was a big influence on me. And her books are kind of complex and um and tricky. And so that's sort of the the zone for for me. But I, you know, it's it's interesting because I feel like I wrote a book that I would want to read, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I hope that that young me would come along for the ride if I had this book when I was ten years old. But um, that was sort of what I was shooting for. So, so what were your comps for the for the oh, book? That is an excellent question. Um, the first comp that really struck me as in the same zone in terms of spooky but set in the contemporary era and a sense of humor, but not jokey, um, was the book Green Glass House by Kate Milford, um, who I have never met, but um, she seems delightful. And I I plan to like get in touch at some point just to say, hey. Um, but Green Glass House, by the time I was shopping the book, was more than five years old. So I chose The Thief Knot, which is another book set in that universe that happened to be more recent. So that is how arbitrary I thought the the standards were. Mm. Um, And then I looked at Victoria Schwab's uh, City of Ghosts, which is kind of a spooky book. Um, I think the character is about the same age and has a female lead. And that is a book about, I I should give a little pitch because these are great books, but (laughs) Green Glass House is a book about a a boy whose parents own an inn, um, kind of like a bed and breakfast for smugglers in this fictional New England town. And he's looking forward to a peaceful Christmas because no one ever stays with them over Christmas. And then one night, a whole bunch of people show up on the shore and they have to go up this like rickety contraption to get to the inn. And he's very disappointed because now he doesn't get to have his solitary Christmas. But uh, instead, there's a, a mystery and he and this the one girl who's who's staying near the house have to solve it. Um, and I don't want to give too much away, but I, I, it was a really cool book. Victoria Schwab's City of Ghosts is about a girl whose parents um, run a, a uh, like a reality show about haunted places. And they don't know that their daughter can actually see and speak to ghosts. Hmm. Um, so they believe in ghosts kind of theoretically, but their daughter's best friend is a ghost. And so he comes with them when they move to... I'm going to get this wrong, but they moved to the world's most haunted city, um, I think Scotland, in Scotland. And uh, of course, then she has to solve a uh, a mystery there. And there's some some life-threatening um, uh, action 
action. So I thought that was a good comp because my book doesn't have like violent violence, but there's a hint of violence. And so, yeah. Scotland is the most haunted city. I'm, I think it's Edinburgh, Scotland, but I, I read the book two years ago. And so if I'm getting it wrong, please, someone (laughs) send lots of emails to the writers on writing podcast and correct me. No, that's interesting. I mean, I, you know, I bet it is true. It's just, it's interesting. Like, now I'm curious what makes it, what happens there, you know, like you hear <laughs> about New Orleans, right? In terms of like weird, strange things going on. But, um, well, I know a book you could read, um, but uh, it's also the first in a series. And so I think that the, the premise, the parents go to different haunted cities. And so I'm kind of excited to read more, but I've, there's a lot that you end up having to read when you have a book coming out. And so it's right, right, right. A lot of, you know, I'm curious in terms of, well, there's so much to talk about. So before we get into that, let's talk specifically about this book and Clara and, and how Clara came about. Well, I, I knew that I wanted a female protagonist and I think part of it was just, I thought that there were lots of boys in fiction for this age and that there ought to be a girl Um, And when people ask me who she's based on, I say, well, she's really based on me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think all characters are in in some way. Um, I also thought that because I wanted this sort of uh, ancient witch or this historic witch to be her her, um, ancestor, uh, that I wanted a a matrilineal line. And so the the part of the plot of the book deals with the women through the ages, um, which I think just kind of worked for the the plot but i also think um i don't know i think 13 is a as and you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think 13 is an interesting age for a girl to be and you're going through a lot as as a girl or a boy and so it just felt felt right so how much did you know about her before you began do you do you do like like um biographies of your characters do you do you know, bone structures where you kind of like figure who they are psychologically, physically, sociologically. I mean, how much, or is it a discovery as you write? Oh gosh. Um, you know, it's interesting because I, I mentioned that I like to brainstorm. And so a lot of it just begins with, well, wouldn't it be cool if, um, but I think most of that led to other characters in the book. I think that Clara is a not necessarily an avatar for the author, but a little bit more me but also I am kind of of the opinion that the main character, um, particularly in a like a middle grade book that's written in the third person, should be just a little bit less edgy um, than the people around them because I feel like the reader inserts themselves into that character. And sometimes when I read middle grade books and the main character is just you know obnoxious or they're making choices where I'm like, no, don't do that. I feel like you did that to make the book more interesting, but it also sort of has the potential to be uncomfortable. And so I don't want to say Clara is uninteresting, but I would say she's she's kind of in the vein of a character who's curious and learning. And um, so that was kind of where I started with that. Well, it's interesting what you said about earlier about reading a lot of middle grade novels. Um because, I mean, this is something all writers should do, right? Read sort of in the genre you're writing. And I'm curious, as you read these books, if you um, read them twice, if you 
you know, how you studied them, like what you were looking for? Were you, were you reading for leisure, pleasure? And, and then at the end you go, oh, this is how I feel about it. Or, you know, were you like marking up the pages and going, okay, great simile, great metaphor. I don't know. Oh, that's funny. I, so I, I'm not inclined to read a book twice unless a lot of time has passed. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I did reread some of the books that I read growing up. And I guess that's, I mean, sort of a distinction is that um, many of us, of course, read kids' books when we were younger. And I think when I was very young, I was kind of a, a big, big reader. And um, it, it's funny because I think my, you know, my mom would be delighted that I would read books that were above my grade level. And then I would make up for that when I got older by reading books that were way below my grade level. Um, but I just, I enjoy potentially everything. Um, but, um, the books that I read growing up, that was in the eighties and those books were written sometimes in the fifties and sixties and seventies. And so it's a very different, um, very different world as well as a different market. And so reading recent books, I think is useful because you can see the, the things that are, are sort of classic and timeless and the stuff that, that might be more uh, a part of the modern fiction, uh, I guess, uh, universe. Um, but I, I, I said this, um, to someone else previously and was trying to put it in words, but I think when I notice something I really like, it's the, the emotional response that I, I think I want to replicate. And so it's not so much, oh, this was a good simile, or this was a, you know, this, this plot device so much as like, oh, this is a, like, just this, the, the shock here or the, the the love that you feel for this character like that's something that I want to try to capture and so um, sometimes when I'm structuring I won't necessarily know what's gonna I by the way I'm I'm a big outliner I know that that people have different styles and I um, I when I when I'm writing anything I like to kind of outline what it's going to be I like to know how it's going to end and that might change but I like to build toward an ending and mm-hmm. so within that. Um, I might have different sort of sections or beats. And so I might not know what is going to happen in a place, but I want to think about what should the audience feel or what should the reader feel? And so um, sometimes uh, the outline doesn't, isn't specific about the plot or character so much as just like something, you know, something funny needs to happen here or something shocking needs to happen here. And then I'll, I'll try to figure out what, what I have to work with. Do you do that according to, um, I don't know, like, you know, save the cat there's, you know, or, or John Truby's anatomy of story where there, or Sid field. I mean, there's all these books on screenwriting talking about and novels on talking about beats and where the midpoint should come. And I mean, are you paying attention to it in that way? I, I hate to admit it, but yes, I, I am. And I think um, my MFA is in film and my background of, of course, I've written a few screenplays um, because I live in Southern California and it's the law, uh, <laughs> but um, none have been produced. Um, but it was, I, it, you know, in film school, I took screenwriting classes and story structure classes. And I, I feel like Robert McKee's um, book was used in one of the classes. And the, the gist of the hero with a thousand faces has been sort of condensed and regurgitated to film students now for years and years. And so I think that's probably the three act structure, like a pretty traditional three act structure is where I, that's what I start with. Um, And then sometimes something gets too long or something gets too much, but I I think it's useful 
um, for me especially, it's useful to figure out like how to how to lead to an ending because I think that it's not just resolving a plot. Like you want a character to kind of go th from something through something to something, um, and so sometimes the third act in a story might have very little to do with the what has been the main plot um, previously. And you also said a few minutes ago, you know, um, how something makes you feel, right? So with your own stuff, how are you telling the difference between, I just love this with, this really makes me feel emotional, or this is really hilarious, or, I mean, how do you kind of parse out what is actual versus what you want it to be, or what that, you fear it isn't, right? That's a that's a good question. Um, I, it's easier for me with public speaking, Mm -hmm. um, because I taught public speaking for years. I competed on the speech team in high school and college, uh, and I coached the speech team at my college for years and years. And so oh, eventually you develop a sense of like, okay, this is where they're going to laugh. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a surprise. This, And you you kind of build around that. And it it in, in that case, it just comes from thousands of hours of, of doing it and watching it and, and helping others. And so with writing, it's a little different, right? Because you don't you don't hear the audience laugh. You don't get that sense. But I think a lot of it is you just try to put yourself in the shoes of someone. And if you fail, you don't have to know because you're not there when they read it. <laughs> You'll find out later, right? Yeah. <laughs> with the Goodreads reviews and the <laughs> Amazon reviews. So after you finished Maybe There Are Witches, um, what happened then? I mean, did you, do you have... Um, first readers? Do you put it away for a year? I mean, what happened in terms of, you know, it's published now. And there was this in between from, you know, finishing the first draft, or I don't know how many drafts you went through to then, you know, having it be accepted for publication. Well, it, I mean, it was a surprisingly long writing process. And I think I, I, I would say I finished the draft that was really ready to send out in 2020. Um, and I had a couple of, of old friends, high school, a high school buddy and a college buddy who I've turned to in the past to read stuff. And, um, and so I sent it to them just for, and I had a list of a few questions, but I really just wanted to hear their thoughts. And then I, I maybe set it aside for a month before I reworked it. I don't, I, I kind of feel like I only have so much time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I wanted to, to work on it. And I did find that it was easier once I was close to the end. Like there's halfway through, there's a there's just this feeling of like, this is never gonna be done. And then once you once the end is in sight, and I had actually written the last couple of chapters before I finished the book, because I wrote out of order. And oh. so yeah. And and so that was um so really I was leading up to the end that I'd already kind of planned. Um and then after it was written, um, and then kind of reworked. Um, I sent, I queried a few agents and, um, and I was just looking online for advice about how to get an agent. Um, and um, the very first, I can't remember the name of the first agent I sent it to, but she was absolutely the most powerful, biggest agent in the business. Um, and I did not have a prayer, um, but, you know, I was dreaming big. Um, and the first, you know, dozen or so agents were, the, I just got the polite, this is not for me email. But then I was reading comps the whole time and I realized, oh, I'm pitching this as a YA novel and it's just not what the, what the YA market is in 2020. And so I, I rewrote it again 
um, and I changed the ages of the characters. I I took out anything that was that was swearing. Um, I wasn't sure about that, but I decided to err on the side of caution. And um, then I sent it to some more agents, and it got a better response. I got a lot of like, oh, can you send me the first twenty pages? or some of the first 50 pages. One thing um, I don't think I realized when I started the process is they really just read the first 10 pages, if that, uh, most of the time. That it's a huge ask to ask somebody to read a whole book. And I thought like, oh, there's so much good stuff in the middle. You're going to love the ending. And that doesn't matter if you don't get past the first 10 pages. And so I, I rewrote that a whole bunch of times. And then while this was going on, I, I think I just saw a pop-up ad for some some competition that was for for you know finished novels and i thought like i have one and there was a category for family it was it was novels that could be adapted into movies it was a cinematic novel competition mm-hmm. so I, I submitted um because i'm like well how many people have a, a whole book sitting around on their laptop millions as it turns out <laughs> um but um, I forgot about it. Like I just did that because it was a pandemic and I was, you know, bored. And then I got an email that I I was a quarter finalist and I was like, well, that's neat. And then I was a semifinalist and I thought, oh, I should enter more contests. <laughs> and so I just looked for contests for middle grade fiction and entered a handful. And um, several of them were were hosted by publishers who offer a publishing contract. And so I um, happened to enter the, uh, at the time, Fitzroy Books, uh, the Kraken Prize. Um, and then I looked up Fitzroy Books and I read some of their books just to see what I thought of them. Because my first big question was, are you real? <laughs> and I, I know that's a terrible thing to say, but I think that more than a million books are published every year in the United States. And that I, it's it's staggering. And most of those are self-published. And some of those are very good and some are terrible. And I'm, I'm sure you've encountered both. Um, but there's just a sense of like, oh, I want to make sure you're a real publisher. I want people to know this is a real book. Um, and so um, I got an email, I don't know, it was like five months later from the um, the publisher, the the owner and, and editor at uh, Fitzroy, which is an imprint of Regal House. And um, it's funny because the email started out the way every rejection starts out. And it says, you know, we received many fine books. And and I'm just like, okay, I'm ready to delete this. And then she said, and I'm delighted to tell you that you have made our long list. And so I was was stoked about that. And then um, later she called and told me that they they chose my book as the winner. And I think because I was, you know, a a coach and a competitor for so long, I asked her how many books were entered, because I really wanted to know. And she said it was over a 1000. And so I was really delighted that even though I didn't go the agent route, um, that I felt like at least I beat someone, which is a terrible thing to say. But I think that it's kind of ingrained into you when you're a competitor for so long that you just gotta, I have to, and also I think having siblings, you just want to be better than someone. No, I think that's, I think that's great. And, you know, a thousand, I mean, a thousand entries, you know, I mean, you should like pretty, be pretty stoked that you want yet- that's less than 1% of the books that people are going to try to publish this year. It's just staggering how many books are written. And so it's, you you kind of do anything you can to, to get noticed. Yeah, you do. Um, So you okay, I'm going to go back again to something you said a few minutes ago, and that was that you wrote um, the ending or the last few chapters out of order. I I did. Also a plotter. So how does a plotter, 
right out of order. I think that's really interesting and really useful. Well, I, I think as a plotter, it's easier to write out of order because I know what's going to happen in any section. Um, and it, I, that, a lot of that, I think, comes from sort of my speech coach experience where I feel like, okay, we every speech is going to have an introduction and a conclusion. We'll have some main points. And if it's a funny speech, then we need to figure out where you might have, have bits or jokes. Um, but I, I think that like you know, I would suggest, hey, write the introduction last because then you know what you are introducing. And sure. if it's a prepared speech, hey, you you don't have to do these things in order. It's what I've learned is it's a little bit more difficult with a, a longer work, like a novel, because I there were chapters that I wrote years before I wrote the previous chapter. And I think that you, you know this having, because you've talked to some writers, I understand, but um, <laughs> one way you could describe writing is it's it's making decisions. You're just, you know, constantly making decisions. And whether you're doing that, you know, off the top of your head or you're doing that with planning. And so, you know, as you write a chapter, there's tons of decisions you have to make, even if you have a, an outline. And so if I wrote the subsequent chapter two years earlier, what are the things that I decided, you know, how how does the, what what color is the wall? What is this person's name? Things like that didn't necessarily match up. So the once I had a full draft, it was really ugly because there were just so many little bits that didn't quite connect. And so I'm trying to write in order um, as I work on a second uh, <laughs> novel. But it was a it was an interesting experience to just be like, you know, I feel like today I'm going to write this. Well, what's really smart about that too is that, you know, when you're going chronologically through a project, through a book, it's like if you hit a place where you don't really know what you want to do at this point, it's so easy to just go, you know what, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to read. I'm going to a movie. I'm going to do whatever. But if you go to where the heat is, right, and if the heat happens to be in the ending and you have an outline, then you know that, the, like you said, that this thing needs to happen around here. So I think that's really a great idea. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> and sometimes you're tired and you just want to write something simple. And sometimes you just got some exposition to get out of the way. Yeah. But outlines, this is like a, a great, a great vote for outlines. I love that. Um, not that I'm an outliner even. I mean, I am more and more as time goes on because I've wasted a lot of time. Well, wasted. I don't know that it's been wasted, but it feels wasted, you know, because I didn't have sort of a, a big picture of what was supposed to go on in this book. And so... I mean, I would say, of course, it's not wasted because that feels like the kind of thing you should say to be supportive. <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously, if you're coaching, a, you know, 14 or 20 students getting ready for the national tournament, hey, every minute counts. And so you want to kind of have an, a, an assembly line. What a terrible thing to say in a writing podcast. I want an assembly line. Um, but uh, to, I, I, I think to a certain extent, at the end of the day, everyone is producing something that that fits together. The pieces have to fit together. I mean, if you want to publish something that has to make sense in some way for someone, even, I mean, even if you're writing something experimental, I mean, there's, there's rules to experimental fiction. So interestingly, so. I, I, that's a good point. And I also think that when you are trying to, you know, break the rules or do something that transcends boundaries, there has to be an expectation of what those rules are or what the boundaries are in order to 
be understood as a rule breaker or a, a boundary breaker. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I would love to hear you read. Oh, gosh. Maybe there are witches. Um, I want to talk to you about this cover, too. But I want to hear you read first. Okay. Um, so the section that I've selected for today is, uh, it's a little bit later in the book, but it is when our main character, Clara, who has moved to a small town and uh, is now convinced that she has to solve this uh, mystery, um, she and her first friend, whose name is Gary, um, are heading to the house of this guy, Chris, who she only kind of knows. And thus far, her impression is that he's a little bit weird. And so this is when they show up at his house in rural Illinois. Um, well, if I can find it. <laughs> Finally, they arrived at Chris's house, marked by a roadside mailbox with the name Beck painted on its side. Chris was in his front yard, working on an upside-down bike that looked like it had survived several different presidential administrations. An extra-large red t-shirt hung off his skinny frame, and his baggy jeans looked two sizes too big. Hola, amigos, he shouted as the two visitors approached, putting down his work and taking a few running steps in their direction. Hi, Chris, Clara said. Chris took them by the shoulders conspiratorially. You want to see a dead coyote? He looked genuinely excited. And Clara was struck by the way his long hair gleamed gold in the sun. I wouldn't mind having hair like that, she thought wistfully. No, uh, I think I'm full up on seeing dead things for the day, but... Thanks, she said. That sounds awesome, actually, Gary said. Chris led them into his house, a dilapidated structure whose peeling paint revealed wood that had turned gray. The dead coyote is in here, she asked, aghast. Chris rolled his eyes. Well, yeah, it'd get all gross if we left it outside. He opened a door to the basement. Clara noticed that like one of the doors in her grandmother's house, the knob was home to dozens of mismatched rubber bands. She figured it must be a small town thing. Watch the fourth step, Chris cautioned, sprinting down. Clara counted one, two, three, four, and avoided the step, making her way more carefully toward the bottom. Gary followed her. Crack! The wood beneath her feet made a sudden splintering sound, and she found herself lurching forward. She shrieked as Chris, moving surprisingly gracefully, caught her. I meant the fourth step from the bottom, he explained. Gary laughed, stepping gingerly around the broken step. At the bottom of the staircase was a large chest freezer, the biggest Clara had ever seen. This must come in handy in a town where the nearest supermarket is 30 miles away, she thought. Chris lifted the lid and a dim light emerged. Check it, check it, he said. Inside, atop stacks of white-wrapped butcher packages and brick-like plastic bags of frozen vegetables, a small coyote lay curled on its side. One of its legs stuck out at an odd angle and Clara couldn't see whether its eyes were open or closed. Cool, Gary offered. I know, right? said Chris. Clara felt a little sick. So, uh, are you guys gonna eat it? Gary laughed, and Chris made a face. Ah, no, coyotes taste awful. You can get a bounty on their pelts for part of the year, though. People who hit little fellows like this on the road probably don't know that, or they'd have kept them themselves. Why do you have them in the freezer, then? Because it's the wrong time of year. There's no bounty yet. As they climbed back up the stairs, Clara made a mental note not to eat meat at the Beck's house. Or vegetables. Or anything else. Ever. Thank you so much. You know, 
you're going to narrate the book, right? You're going to make an audio book out of this. Uh, the audiobook is coming in July, and the narrator is an actress named Hannah Lass. Oh, wow. And uh, I'm excited about that. Yeah. You would have been good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, had you ever considered being a, a voiceover actor? I mean, it's one of those things you think about in you know your life, like, oh, I wonder what this would be like. It strikes me as a, a very competitive industry. Um, but uh, a lot of friends, I guess, because my background is in speech, a lot of friends asked if I was going to narrate the audiobook, And my response was the same as I said about the cover, which is that um, I don't want the person who narrates my audiobook to be doing it for the first time in their life. Um, <laughs> just like I didn't want the person designing the cover to be doing it for the first time ever. And so I was comfortable letting, uh, letting my publisher uh, find someone to make those, uh, yeah, yeah. those happen. Well, speaking of the cover, um, what a great cover. And I wondered, did you have anything to do with it or did they run it by you after they had an initial kind of sketch or, or what, how'd that go? So the process for this publisher, um, we fill out a worksheet and it's you explain like how you want the title to uh, be spelled or you know how how the title is formatted and what your name should be on the cover and um, and then it asks about like themes of the book and who are the main characters and things like that and it becomes very clear that the person designing the cover is not going to read the book sure. um, and I think that's I mean getting someone to read a whole book especially if you're in an industry where you're doing you know. Yeah. designing parts of it like that's it's a big ask um and so after the worksheet um they were pretty clear that there would be no uh no more input like they they want to make it clear the author does not get to decide what the cover is and and i i mean i was delighted i thought the um the font looks very whimsical and curly and that oh, was yeah. the font is perfect something i was hoping for and there's a spooky house um and it's on a hill on the cover, even though there are no hills in the town that I've written, but I'm okay with that. It's creative license. Um, the one change that I made, there's a blurb on the cover, um, Stephen T. Siegel, who is a fantastic writer and most of his background is in writing for comic books. Um, but he is the he read uh, an early draft and was, was willing to provide um, uh, a review. Um, and so, for those of you who are are uh, listening to the podcast, it says darkly fantastic, which is a fun turn of phrase. Um, but the first draft of the cover that I have said that Stephen T. Siegel, Stephen T. Siegel is the co-creator of Ben 10 and Big Hero 5. Mm -hmm. um, and Big Hero 6, of course, is the, the comic book that he wrote that was made into a Disney movie. So I did ask them to fix that. But otherwise, uh, that was like the extent of my input. Yeah, it's beautiful, really. It's what a great, what a, and you know, it's reminding me of the side characters because you mentioned side characters a little while ago, um, saying how you know the main character doesn't need or maybe shouldn't be too strange or too quirky or too out there, but you can you do that with the side characters, and you know, I'm thinking of even adult fiction where side characters are, you know. In, in ways more interesting than the main character, right? Will you talk about that, writing side characters? Sure. Um, well, I, I think um, as, a, as an adult, sometimes I can read something and think like, oh, this person is, is grotesque and unlikable, but I can still enjoy this book. I can still read about them. 
Uh, sometimes I, and maybe it's because I'm an adult, when I'm reading or listening to middle grade books, I'll think, wow, you're just, you're so obnoxious. And I, I really want you to, to wise up. Um, but I think that having a character reacting to someone else's behavior can be sort of an interesting dynamic. And so one of the characters in the book is kind of mean, like he's a boy who's sarcastic and doesn't have a lot of friends. And um, in the early drafts, he was, I think, meaner. And um, uh, my editor made the good point, I think that like, we don't want people to hate him. And I'm like, as long as he goes through a journey, I'm okay with with dialing down some of his snarky insults in the beginning. And then the other character, um, Chris, who I, I just had to voice in the reading, um, is among other things, he's a, a skinny backwoods kid who lives kind of in the middle of nowhere and happens to have really long hair, um, which I thought was interesting because um, uh, although I wasn't a long haired kid, when I was very young, I was often mistaken for a girl. Um, and I've always, and you know, it's not that I identified that way. It's just, I was a kid, you know, little boy, skinny with long eyelashes and um, and so I thought, like, for some reason, that that would be a, an interesting archetype if he was also, like, you know, good at fixing bikes and, you know, knew how to use uh, a table saw and things like that, that that sort of juxtaposition might be kind of fun. Um, and then, you know, an, someone, I can't remember which reader thought that the the having the coyote in the freezer was a little bit, um, a little bit much maybe for a, a kid's book. And I thought like that was based on my life. Like really? we we had lots of dead animals in the deep freeze on the farm. In fact, the last time I went to my dad's house, there was a coyote in his freezer and um, there was also a garbage bag. And I'm like, dad, why, why is there blood on the, the outside of this garbage bag? And he said, oh, those are squirrels. Um, and so I do not think dad meant to eat the coyote, but I do think that he may have cleaned and eaten some of the squirrels. So that's just my upbringing. That's interesting. Do you write about this? Oh, I know uh, some in your, in your bio that I saw about, you know, where you grew up and, but. Um... Well, I, um, I had a short story. I placed a short story with a, a magazine last year that is also set in kind of a fictionalized version of my hometown um, because another thing that I thought was sort of interesting about the rural area where I grew up is that there were some private cemeteries um, that you might buy a parcel of land that happens to have a cemetery that's a hundred or so years old on it. And the expectation is that you'll you'll maintain it. And so I wrote a short story about that because we had some neighbors who had their own cemetery. Um, but uh, I've also made the decision that I want to set more books in um, not necessarily this town, but in in sort of these small town Illinois, um, because I, I I guess because I want to be like like Stephen King, where I just make up fictional towns in a particular state and and have my own zone. But the reason that I fictionalize them is because while I do enjoy doing research, I, I'm sure I would get stuff wrong. And so I feel like this way I can kind of mash a couple of things together and I don't have to worry about what the real mayor's name is and things like that. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you can borrow from the real place and, you know, you have latitude to do whatever else you want. Right. Yeah. And my hope is that the book becomes a runaway bestseller and people visit Bishop Hill, Illinois, which is just a, a charming village. Um, and uh, there, I mean, it's, it's, I think the population is about 200 
my town, the population is 140 people. But right. I think, yeah, but it's it's hard to conceptualize towns that small if you're not from that sort of region. Like my hometown had 400 people, Hillsdale, Illinois, and we had a gas station and a gun shop. And then there was a library. There's a little one room library building because, you know, libraries um, are are necessary. Um, but we didn't have a grocery store. There were no doctors in town. You know, it's the fire department was entirely volunteer. You know, it's just that's the way it is. So who did you read as a kid? Who did you love? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I was a huge Roald Dahl fan growing up. And I know subsequently, I think that I, I feel like I should say this, like Roald Dahl has said some problematic things during his life, but he's he's passed away. Um, and um, so I, I I really got into Roald Dahl. When I was in fourth grade, um, my teacher said, oh, I think you would like this. And she handed me The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin. And I mm -hmm. just loved it. Like I like a, just a, a weird, funny puzzle book. Um, to the point where I decided this year to read everything else that Ellen Raskin ever wrote. And so I ordered some of her out of print um, picture books because she was also an artist. Um, and then, gosh, oh, I loved the John Belair's series. He wrote The House with the Clock in Its Walls and um, The Curse of the Blue Figurine. And so I liked those kind of scary mysteries with a child protagonist. And uh, okay. I thought that, yeah, so those are some of my favorite authors. You know, you mentioned Roald Dahl and his late, late, latest um, gaffe, which is it? Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm thinking of what's happened with Elizabeth Gilbert, where she pulled back her novel because her Ukrainian fans are offended that she's showing Russia in a positive light. And so, and then they're editing and revising Agatha Christie and Mark Twain in certain places. What do you think about that? Well, on the one hand, I don't want to make anyone mad. Um, and so I, my, I mean, I've always sort of felt like, oh, make a decision about something after you read it or after you hear it. But I also understand that there's, there are lots of, of takes on those things. But when it comes to, for example, Roald Dahl, um, the Roald Dahl Story Company made the decision to change some of the language in his children's books. Um, and um, on the one hand, I feel like, oh, this is a classic story, and I like the idea that that the classics stay the classics. And on the other hand, because I thought about it, um, Roald Dahl's books have been translated into something like 60 languages. You know, like the Charlie of the Chocolate, or The Witches is a book that saw some changes. That's been translated into more than 50 languages. And this is really just another translation. And so Roald Dahl did not write his book in French or in Finnish or in Japanese. Someone else decided how to communicate that story in those languages. And so I, I think that another way to look at this sort of modern update uh, of his books is that it's a translation for a modern audience because, you know, some of sometimes the language that was used in the 1960s and 70s isn't what we would use today. And Roald Dahl rewrote some of his books during his lifetime. The other thing I would say about that, though, uh, is because a lot of the articles about it seemed to gloss over the fact that the Roald Dahl Story Corporation is owned by Netflix. Mm -hmm. They bought it lo like lock, stock and barrel, and they are in the process of producing a lot of Roald Dahl content. But I feel like, oh, it's not like his family is sitting around making these decisions. Netflix owns the rights to all of his stories now. Mm -hmm. Hmm. 
that's just a fun fact because I'm a, yeah. also a media literacy teacher. Yeah. Is that what you do at Orange Coast? I do. I teach Introduction to Mass Communication and Media Literacy classes. Um, Intro to Mass Comm is kind of a survey course about the history and, and uh, theory and business. And then Media Literacy is about analyzing the messages we consume in the news, on social media, in entertainment. Um, and boy, the last five years have like sold the class. Like it, it's weird how the interest has been high. And I think a lot because college students, college administrators, people are, are concerned about, uh, you know, about how do we approach the, the media in front of us? Well, it's like, is it real? You know, yeah. what you were saying about that publisher, like asking them that, is so you and what you do. Are you real? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Although in that sense, I'm not saying like, oh, are you a fictional publisher so much as just like, yeah, are you like a fly by night? You know, right. that there's so many different levels, but right. it's true with journalism too, you know, that there, there was a time when most people got their news from a local newspaper or the local evening news. And I think particularly with, with college age students, most people do not have a single source that they turn to for the majority of their news. It's not that they get zero news, but they kind of graze, you know, that they might have an app on their phone, they, they use social media. Um, and uh, because of that, you don't have a relationship with a source anymore. You know, my, my grandmother read the Quad City Times every morning at breakfast. And so she had a, a sense of how much I trust this newspaper. By the way, Quad City Times, if you're listening, I feel like my book would be a great subject for a profile. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, but, um, but you know, and even I, like I subscribe to the my local paper, the Orange County Register. Um, but most of the news reading that I do, I'm, I'm grazing from different sources. And, and if you get a, a link or you see a, a, you know, a tweet or a post that's from someone you've never heard of, there, it's it's hard to figure out what is the process I go through to decide whether to trust it. And there isn't just one process. Like it's it's not like here is the magical key to always knowing what is mm -hmm. what is real and what isn't. Um, it's kind of a skill, and it's interesting because it's a skill that some people are naturally better at than others. Some people develop the skill better than other people. But if somebody is terrible at figuring out what's real very rarely do they like to have that pointed out to them. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's an interesting world that we live in. And you mentioned the Orange County Register, and I was thinking how I haven't subscribed for a long time. I get the LA Times, but the Orange County Register is local to our county, and I need to resubscribe. <laughs> well, I... I... I'm a fan of, I mean, a hyper-local newspaper. I'll give a shout out to Orange Coast College's Coast Report because the students um, do a, a, a surprisingly excellent job. Not that we should be surprised, but just for a, you know, they're, they're college students, but boy, they they cover some sometimes hard-hitting stuff. I mean, we've got crime that, that students have uncovered, um, but I... I, this is sort of a tangent, but I think that local news is dying in the U.S. and probably around the world. And um, I think sometimes people feel like, oh, I'm angry at the local paper because they they endorse a candidate that I don't like or, you know, whatever. And I think that if you don't subscribe to your local paper, it's not as though something else is going to come along to replace it. That the, the end point is that local news dies. And it's something... I mean, I tried to reach out and send press releases to the small town newspapers 
in the in Henry County, which is the area where this book is set. And what I discovered is all of them were purchased by the company that owns USA Today in the last five years. And all of them were combined into a single digital newspaper. They no longer print. And all of the editors in the last two years wrote editorials that said, so long, it's been great. And um, I don't know if they actually do any local journalism now. It's just the lottery numbers and and sort of associated press stories. And um, and in some ways that's sad. If you look at things like what was the Geneseo Republic covering 10 years ago, it's like, yeah, the, the school kids could see their name in the paper. And there was something kind of magical about that. You know, you mentioned sending flyers and I wondered if you sent postcards or anything to libraries around the around the country. I uh, reached out uh, via email to a bunch of libraries. I may follow up with postcards. It's marginally more expensive, um, but um, I love libraries and I had a viral meme about libraries a year and a half ago. And so I felt like now you owe me. And so I wrote to a whole bunch of libraries and they were great. Some libraries wrote right back and said, sure, we're going to add this to our collection. Most of them said like, oh, we have a process. So we're going to forward this to the, the committee. But I did, um, I, I think um, someone asked me like, oh, but if libraries have your book, people can check it out and they don't pay for it. And I thought if every library in the country buys my book, I could make a living. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's the downside. But then a lot of times, you know, I've, taken books out of libraries and I end up buying them because now I want it, you know, I don't want to have to give it back. And so there's, you know, I think sales that are generated in terms of, we have to think about sales, you know, or people telling somebody, you know, I just read the best book and, you know, their library doesn't have it. So they go out and buy it. And I think, especially when you're not famous um, and I, you're more famous than I am, but still, you know, neither of us is like a household word. When you're not famous, you just want people to be exposed to your work. Um, and so I would love it if uh, somebody checks out my, actually a friend of mine, um, an old college friend said, hey, I'm going to request that my local library buy your book. And he sent me an image because they had already ordered it before he reached out to them. And I was like, oh, that's neat. That's great. That's great. Um you know, I, I was curious, well, on a real kind of nitty gritty um, level, um, whether you write directly onto the computer or if you write longhand, I'm curious then, like if you do go on, well, at some point you go on the computer, what program you use and what font you use. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I take notes longhand, like I'll have a notebook and I'll I'll scroll in that. Although now most of my notes are on my phone because if I'm if I'm out and something occurs to me, that's what I have. And I'll, I'll, I'm sure lots of people do that, but I write the rough draft directly on the computer. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, um, again, I don't want to offend anyone, but I'm a Mac person. So I use um, pages to write on, which is really inconvenient because then I have to convert it because my friends who don't use Macs can't read it if I don't. Um, and I, it's weird, but when I started the book, there was a font called Iowan, and I used that because it just felt thematically appropriate since Iowa was only 10 miles away when I grew up. And uh, I think now I just use Times New Roman because I think Iowan went away for some reason. My publisher loves Garamond, which is the weirdest thing because everything we send is supposed to be Garamond. And so I did that to some other um, a, a writing group, and I got an email that said, please use Times New Roman. 
<laughs> it's so funny because I usually use Times New Roman, but this morning or last night I started a piece and I wanted to use Garamon and I started hmm. with Garamon. It's like, this is different. This feels a little different. Well, I'll give you my publisher's contact info. Okay. <laughs> um, gosh, so much you left, Jude, that we have to talk about. But I think, you know, let's get to writing middle grade fiction. Like, what would you tell somebody who wants to write it? Or they're thinking, you know, I'm not sure if it's YA or a picture book or middle grade. I want to write for kids. Then what? Gosh, I mean, I think the first thing to do is to read a bunch. And I would say from my own experience, don't rely on memories of the stuff you read growing up. Um, although, I mean, I'm, I've read middle grade over the years. I mean, I, lots of people read the Harry Potter books. I, I read the Percy Jackson books. I, you know, every now and then a book will just stand out to me. Um, but I think read a lot of what's out there so that you, you are, you get a sense of the, the ebbs and flows of the stories um, and what you can get away with. I think if you, if you want to be a boundary breaker, you should understand the rules before you, you break them. Um, and then I think uh, write something that you as an adult would still enjoy reading, because I think that if it's a chore for you to get through it, then it probably isn't going to be more fun for somebody who's 10 or 11 years old. Well, I was thinking about that as I was reading yours, that it's the kind of book that, you know, your kid's reading it and you want to read it. And so, you know, what a great thing to then be able to talk about an interesting book kid's book with your kid. Well, I, I hope that happens. I will say most of the people who have reviewed it so far are in their 40s and 50s. And so my my hope is that, but I mean, I don't think that many 10 and 11 year olds are on Goodreads. And so it's, it's right. just a different vibe. But I did think about Pixar a lot when I, you know, that the strategy that Pixar Studios has had for years is that they are movies that are for the entire family, right. basically. And so I tried to have some some elements that might resonate more with with grownups, but still uh, appeal to well, kids. Speaking of Pixar, how are you getting this book to film people? That's an interesting question. Um, I I would be delighted if the if an adaptation were made. Um, I think technically, because I signed with an indie publisher, they control the rights. Like we split the revenue, but I can't independently um, pitch it the way I think um, some authors may. Um, and um, we'll see. I did have a friend who worked for, he was an accountant for a major production company. And he was like, oh, I'm leaving because he, when you're an accountant, often you move from one show to another. And he's like, but send me your book and I'll leave it with some of our development execs. And so technically he handed a copy to, uh, I think the people who did, I'm going to get this wrong. I think they did the Lord of the Rings. And so <laughs> I am sure, like I've said many times, reading a book is a big ask. So I'm sure they just set it aside, but someday when the hit movie comes out, yeah, they'll I mean, wish they'd read it. You never know. You Seriously. Know, right. We don't know. Um, okay. Well, how about some writerly advice for the writers um, who are hitting a wall with their story? And what 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 can you tell them to do? Well, I so I want to share a quotation. And I thought it was a quotation from Neil Gaiman, who is a writer that I, I really love and respect. And I think he's he's written 
uh, American Gods and the Graveyard Book. And he's really good at structure, but I think that nobody talks about his structure because he's so good at other stuff. Um, and what I learned is it's not a quote from Neil Gaiman. It's in the foreword to one of his books, and he is quoting the writer Gene Wolfe. And the quote is, you never learn how to write a novel. You only learn to write the novel you're on. Mm-hmm. And I th- I thought about that a lot um, over, you know, while I was trying to finish this and I, a lot now that I'm trying to finish my second novel. And it's that they there are always um, choices and decisions and problems that that come up. And so you have to make a decision that what will work for this, what will work specifically for this. And sometimes I think when I've read something that just blows me away that I think is a masterpiece, um, I'll think like, oh yeah, it's it's it just just the one right decision took this in a direction that was was really wonderful or magical. And so my advice for what it's worth um, is I think that brainstorming is a good way to approach a problem, especially a creative problem. And I think that when you brainstorm, the most important thing is that you don't judge yourself in the moment. And so if you generate a bunch of possibilities and it's, you know, it doesn't matter that you're doing all this work because you want to create something good. Earlier, we we talked about whether we waste time when we're writing something. No, I think that like generating a bunch of possibilities. And so if you if you're faced with like, oh, gosh, what happens next? Um, think about all the things that could happen and think outside the box about what could happen next. And then after you've done that brainstorming, then I think go in and and start to weigh, okay, where would this take us? Where would this take us? Um, I think that when I face writer's block, <clears throat> it's more like, oh, I just don't feel like writing today than it is, oh, I don't know what to write. Like I, and maybe it's because I'm an outliner. Like I feel like, oh, I have all this stuff that I need to do. Um, and uh, sometimes it it's uh, like, I have to focus. Um, but that's, uh, my advice is is let your mind wander when it comes to those sorts of decisions and then, and don't judge yourself until after the fact. Mm. Yeah. The judging such a bad thing, Mm. you know, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I wish you just so much luck with maybe there are witches, you know, thank you. I'm, I'm so delighted to be here. And this is, this was a lot of fun. Thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music and sound editing and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. You can access our archive of shows 25 years worth at writersonwriting.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Mm-hmm.